to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. The title of the message is The Final Apologetic. I must tell you that when you hear the word apologetic, you may think of apologizing to your mom or to your dad or to someone who you hurt, but that is not the meaning of this particular word. What I'm referring to is the discipline of Christian apologetics, which is defined as the, the defense of the Christian faith or the defense of the gospel, or as Peter describes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that we are called to be prepared prepared to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. And so we have titled this message, The Final Apologetic. In John chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus says something in his high priestly prayer that Francis Schaeffer, who, full disclosure, is one of my heroes. There you see him now. He went to be with the Lord in 1981. But Schaeffer says, when I hear these words, it always causes me to cringe. Schaeffer says, if as Christians we do not cringe, it seems to me that we are not very sensitive or very honest. Because Jesus here gives us the final apologetic. What is that final apologetic? The answer is found in Jesus' prayer. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then Schaefer utters these words, this is the final apologetic. We should cringe, as Schaefer says, because we know that oftentimes in the Christian life, we know that even at Christ Fellowship that there are times that we fail to live in unity with one another. When the church gossips, we know this, a division has been fostered. When church members allow bitterness to grow, then we know that a division is encouraged. When a divisive spirit takes root, it is guaranteed that a division will begin to grow in a church family. And when these groups refuse to submit to the leaders that God has sovereignly ordained, we also know that a division of sorts is brewing. And now when all these sins combine, gossip, bitterness, divisiveness, a failure to submit as God calls us to, you combine these different sins, a division erupts. Among the people of God. And then we know that Satan has achieved one of his prime objectives, and God is greatly dishonored by such a scenario. It's very interesting because one pastor has identified five areas that have the power to divide a church. I want to give those areas to you now and have you think about them with me. Five areas that have the power to divide a church. Here they are. Number one, pride. Pride will divide a church. It only takes one person filled with pride to, to enter a local church and begin to, to spread like wildfire throughout the church. This pastor then says that heresy has the power to divide a church family. False teaching. The third thing that may divide a church is legalism. 
And many of you, I'm sure, have been involved in churches where, where legalism was a part of the culture of the church and you paid horrible dividends for that. Number four is the seeds of distrust. When the people of God begin to distrust one another or when the people of God begin to distrust their leaders, we see that a division is likely to take place. And then the final one is traditionalism. And, of course, you all know what traditionalism is. It goes something like this. Well, we never did it that way before. That's traditionalism. And I need to tell you that these five things not only have the power to divide a church, any one of them or combination of them have the power to destroy a church. Now, at the top of... Satan's diabolical strategies is this, is to divide the church and to destroy the church. And it was with a great deal of humility that I tell you that the pastor who shared these five sins that can divide a church, he shared these things back in 2012. And it wasn't much longer after he shared these things that one of the largest, most productive and effective churches, not only in the Pacific Northwest, but in the United States, collapsed. It was utterly destroyed. Why? Pride. Pride. God calls his people to stand united. That's the truth point this morning. I want to give it to you in advance and have you consider this primary thought that God calls us to be united. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 6 call us to be a people of unswerving unity. I want to have you read this together with me and stand as we look at Ephesians chapter 4 and begin to read in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. This is the Word of God. This is the authoritative Word of God, which is infallible, inerrant in the original autographs, and God-breathed. Paul the Apostle, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray together. Father, even as I consider this pastor who uh, uttered the five things that have the power to divide a church, and in his case, one or two of those things destroyed the church that he pastored for so many years. God, I pray that you would wake us up. God, I pray that you would give us the ability to exercise biblical discernment. But more than that, God, I pray that you would enable us by your grace and through the power of your spirit to be obedient. That we would be the people of God who would stand united. That we would not be engaged in gossip. That we would not be involved in chit-chat and bitterness. That we would not be a people of divisiveness. Rather, we would be 
the people of God who stand united, all because of the gospel. So would you encourage us, would you help us to understand the, the importance of this truth point as we walk through these verses together? I ask God that you would encourage your people. God, I know that some people may need to be convicted by the power of your spirit, and I pray that if that is the case, that you would do just that. But God, that you would not leave a person who is convicted to merely sit there, but they would be drawn to the cross, that they would recognize that, that they are offered forgiveness for free because of the cross work of your son. So enable us by your grace to learn some new and exciting things today so that we would be encouraged and equipped and edified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul begins the fourth chapter of Ephesians by providing a clue for his readers. He begins with two words. He says, I therefore... That's in the ESV or even the King James, or if you turn to the New American Standard or the Christian Standard Bible, it's translated as, therefore I. One of the fundamental questions that you should get used to asking yourself as you study the Bible is, what's it there for? Some of you know this very important interpretive method when it comes to studying Scripture. When you see the word therefore, you immediately ask a question. You say, what's it there for? What's it there for? If we do a brief flyover of Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, we will see why Paul begins chapter 4 with the word therefore. I want you to look with me at, at what I consider to be a, a literal theological goldmine. Because deep in the caverns of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, we have, over the past several months, unearthed a, a treasure trove of theological gold. In chapter 1, we discovered the beauty of sovereign grace. We learn that God has chosen us to be holy and blameless in his sight. That he has predestined his people because he loves them. Moreover, in chapter 1, we have discovered some of the roles in the Godhead, in the Trinity. We have discovered how much that God loves us. We have discovered the inheritance that is ours in Christ. Move to chapter 2. And if you, if you imagine a... Uh, Nathan's upstairs running PowerPoint. Nathan, what are those things that fly in the air that you like? The drone. Thank you. Have you ever seen the drone over Bellingham? It's circulated on the Internet. It's like you want to say, I live there? It is absolutely stunning. And that's what I want you to see this morning is we're going we're gonna to lift the drone high over Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And we're going to look down and say, that's, that's, the, that's where we came from over the last several months? Move to chapter 2. We discover there how sinful we are apart from the grace which is ours in Christ. We have discovered the, the plan to rescue sinners from the spiritual grave that God made us alive together with Christ. We discovered in chapter 2 that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, all to the glory of God. We discovered that we have new standing with Christ. We are no longer, if we were Christians, we are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. Rather, we have been raised together with Christ. Chapter 3, 
We discovered there the, the mystery of the gospel. We learn that when we suffer, we remind ourselves of the gospel. When we feel weak, we remind ourselves of the gospel. When we feel overwhelmed, we remind ourselves of the gospel. When we feel like our lives are spinning out of control, we remind ourselves of the gospel. On those days where you battle discouragement, you remind yourself of the gospel. And so Paul begins in chapter 4. He says, therefore, in light of all that we have discovered in chapters 1, 2, and 3, he now transitions from the theological goldmine in those three chapters to a series of what you might call practical principles that have direct and immediate application to our lives. You might think of it this way. I want to put this on PowerPoint so you can visualize this in your mind's eye. In chapters 1 to 3, we have the imperatives. Let's look at that together. Chapters 1 to 3, we have the, rather the indicative. In other words, what has Christ done for us? Think about chapter 1, 2, and 3 and say, what has Jesus done for us? That's in the indicative mood. These are facts. These are realities. But as we move forward to chapters 4, 5, and 6, we move to the imperative mood. We move to this question. What does God, on the basis of chapters 1, 2, and 3, what does he call us to do? Specifically, what is our responsibility before him? Well, as Paul begins this new section, this new angle in his letter to the Ephesians, we learn this. Our responsibility as Christ followers is to lock arms and be united. I want you to see two clarifying points that help explain the importance of this reality. The first is found in verses 1 to 3. Will you read it together with me once again? I, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The first clarifying point I want you to see and to understand this morning is the responsibility to maintain unity. The responsibility to maintain unity. In verses 1 to 3, we find the Apostle Paul making a plea. He, he pleads with the Ephesian believers. Now, as you're very well aware, a plea comes in many forms. For instance, a fireman might plead with a person to stay away from a burning building. A law enforcement officer, a police officer might plead with a crowd with the use of a bullhorn to, to vacate a dangerous area. That's his plea. Or a parent might, might get on one knee and plead with a child to obey. I'm sure none of you can relate to this one at all, ever. A coach might plead with his team to, to play with passion, to play with zeal. And whatever... Whatever the case might be, a plea is generally urgent in nature. It is an urgent request, usually associated with some form of emotion. And so Paul's plea in verses 1 to 3 is marked by a tremendous amount of urgency, as we will see. I want you to see 
three very important aspects of this plea. We begin by looking at the basics of Paul's plea. What are the basics of Paul's plea? In verse 1, he says, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk. Here he, he urges the Ephesian believers. Now, that word urge is critically important. It means to Ask for something earnestly. It means to exhort. But as you dig deeper into the meaning of this word that comes from the Greek word parakaleo, really what Paul is doing is he is begging. He is pleading. You see the emotion attached to this word. He says, I beg you. I plead with you to the Ephesian believers. Now, I want you to see some other places in the New Testament where the word is used to get you uh, to give you a, a flavor of how it is used. It's a word that Paul uses frequently. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 16, he says to the believers in Corinth, "I urge you to imitate me." You see the emotion attached to that? I urge you to imitate me. Over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you may do so more and more. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Finally, in Titus chapter 2, verse 6, he says, likewise, I urge the younger men to be self-controlled. For me, this is the one that I hear an enormous amount of emotion behind the word. It's as if he he gets on his knee and says to these young men, I urge you, I plead with you, I beg you, be young men who are committed to self-control. And so he urges these Ephesian believers, move forward with me though, and notice in Ephesians 4.1, he urges these Ephesian believers to do something very specifically. He urges them to walk. He urges them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which they have been called. Now, this is a statement that is literally exploding with significance. You see, Paul is exhorting the Ephesians to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. The word walk, if you want to highlight that word in your Bible, is a word that Paul is also fond of using. It comes from the Greek word peripateo, and it involves the the way that we live our lives. It involves the direction of our lives. It involves the passions of our lives. It involves the conduct of our lives. How do we behave at school? How do we behave on the job? How do we behave in the household of God? How do we behave at the baseball game? You say, Pastor, that's a different proposition altogether. No, there are no exceptions in the Christian life. He calls us to walk in a manner that is in, in sync with our calling. 
Specifically, he says, we're called to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Which means this, we are to walk in a way that reflects the majesty of God. We are to walk in a way that reflects the holy character of God. Would you hold your finger in Ephesians chapter 4 and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and look beginning at verse 12 of Philippians chapter 3 because Paul the Apostle shows exactly what this worthy walk looks like. I think you'll like it. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul helps us to understand that this call is a vertical call. This call to the worthy walk is an upward call. But it is not only an upward call. If you recall Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, we see that it is an upward call, but it is also an outward call. Why? Because we are called to propagate the gospel. I was at Starbucks. I know that is a big shock to you, but I was at Starbucks a few days ago. And... I was talking to a friend of mine. He was asking, actually it was Galen, when I was at the hospital with Galen. Galen says, so are you going to take some time to, to study while you're here at the hospital? I said, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll steal away some time there at Starbucks. And he was asking how I could do that. Like, isn't that distracting? I said, man, the noisier, the better. Give me some noise, give me some music, give me some racket, and I can, I can, I can block it all out if I have to. And so as I, was, I was studying at Starbucks. I overheard an older man, I think it was a grandfather, talking to his grandson. And he was sharing with some things that this young man needed to know. And we, when he concluded the conversation, he said to his grandson, Young man, do you know what that, that's called? And his grandson, he was about 11. He had no idea what his grandfather had just told him. The grandfather said, That young man is indoctrination. And I thought, Yeah, there's a guy I like. Now, I'm glad you think it's funny because in our culture, indoctrination, indoctrination is a curse word. No one is to be indoctrinated anymore. But the people of God are called to not only be indoctrinated, and all it means is to be instructed. But we are not only called to be indoctrinated, we are called to indoctrinate. That is, we are called to disseminate the message of the gospel. We are called to proclaim the gospel. And so this call, this worthy walk, is an upward call. It's an, it's an outward call, but it is also an urgent call. And we get that flavor in Ephesians chapter 4 when Paul says, I urge you to walk in a way, in so many words, that is pleasing to the living God. There is a for- forcefulness to this term that we must not miss. I want you to hear the passion behind Paul's plea. This is a passion that he pleads with the Ephesians to live a Godward life. This is a call to live in such a way that as, as we live in Whatcom County, that the people around us would scratch their heads and say, that person's probably a Christ follower. 
because of the way she lives her life, I'm pretty sure she's one of those Christians. How exactly will the world know that you and I are followers of Jesus Christ? What is it that will define a Christian? I want you to go with me now from the basics of Paul's plea to the building blocks of Paul's plea. The building blocks of Paul's plea. And the building blocks involve four important characteristics that should mark the life of every Christian. Notice first, he urges them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that they have been called, verse 2, with all humility. The first building block is a life characterized by humility. Some of you are saying, I know where this is going. This is going to get uncomfortable really quick. Humility comes from a word that means a person who lacks arrogance. This is a person who lacks pride. If you have never had the opportunity to read C.J. Mahaney's book, Humility, I would urge you, are you with me? I would urge you, passionately urge you to read it. Honestly, I've lost track how many times I've read it. I know I've read it at least three or four times. It is a a stunning book. Here's what C.J. Mahaney says about humility. He says, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. See, God tells us that he looks favorably on the man or the woman, on the boy or the girl who is humble. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. The first building block, the first sign to the watching world that we're followers of Jesus is lives characterized by humility. But there's a second quality that is also found in this passage in verse 2. And that is that we have lives characterized by gentleness. Our lives are characterized by gentleness. And this is an interesting word in the Greek. It means a person who is mild-mannered. It means a person who is even-tempered. It means a person who is meek. There's a lot of talk about the word meekness these days. The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche used to say this about meekness. He'd say meekness is weakness. Well, Mr. Nietzsche was wrong. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is godliness. My dear friend Wayne Pickens used to say this about meekness. Meekness is strength under control. Men, you are called to be men who demonstrate the quality of meekness. You are a strong man. You are a bold man. But it is strength under control. This word gentleness describes a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit. A person who responds with kindness to his opponents. A gentle person communicates the claims of Jesus with tender-hearted compassion and understanding. In short, a gentle person is a godly person. Notice the third quality that's also found in verse 3. This is a a life that is characterized by patience. Patience. This comes from the Greek word makrothumia. And some of you already know where I'm going. Where's Steve Nims? Steve Nims already has it on the the tip of his tongue. Long-suffering. That's what my grandpa used to call makrothumia. That's a person who is committed to long-suffering. 
Paul tells us that patience is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Finally, we recognize a a Christ follower, as verse 3 says, is because they have a life characterized by love. Paul specifically says that the mark of a Christian is to, notice, bear with one another in love. I don't know about you, but sometimes that is really, really difficult. In fact, I would go so far to say it is impossible sometimes to bear with a knucklehead in love. I have been in so many conversations with young men over the past several years, and I will share with a young man that they need to to bear with someone in love. They need to love their wife as Christ loves the church. They need to be patient with their children. And we'll get to the end of the conversation, and the young man will say to me, okay, pastor, I, I understand what you're saying. And then I say something that just changes everything. I say, I'm glad that you understand the nature of this conversation. I'm glad you received the encouragement. Here's the bottom line. You can't do it. I remember the last time I said that to a, a dear brother, and he literally went, <sighs> like, great, you tell me what to do, appreciate it, but now you tell me I can't do it. I can't tell you how many times we've had that conversation. But as a church family, hopefully we've, we're coming to the place now where we realize that we can't do it, for I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives within me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I can't do it. Love your neighbors as yourself. I can't do it. Love your wives as Christ loves the church. I can't do it. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. I can't do it. That is correct. But by the Spirit's power and by the Spirit's enabling and through the power of the gospel, you, someone help me, can do it and you will do it. And so you will bear with one another in love. These are the building blocks that set Christians apart. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Now here's what's interesting. Paul reiterates the forcefulness of these imperatives in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Listen carefully. Put on then... As God's chosen one, says Paul, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, that's gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Notice that these marks that should characterize you and I which will impact the world, that they have nothing to do with our knowledge. They have nothing to do with our education. They have nothing to do with our giftedness. They have nothing to do with our our skill. They have nothing to do with our social status. The world will know that we are Christ followers by our humility, our gentleness, our patience, and our love. Finally, notice the bottom line of Paul's plea. And look with me at verse 3. In the bottom line, he spells it out. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul urges the Ephesians to live a worthy life according to the calling they have received, that their lives are marked by humility, gentleness, patience, and love. The bottom line of this plea is that they would be 
unified. He goes so far to say that they should be eager to be unified. That's a word that means zealous. And in this case, zealous to maintain unity in the body of Christ. Have you ever had a conversation with someone in the body of Christ and you warn that person? You better watch it, mister. You better watch it, missus. If you say that, you're going to create division. And the response goes something like this. I don't care where this leads. I will get my way, which greatly dishonors God. Unity, you see, is the state of being united. It points to community. It points to dwelling together in harmony. It suggests the state of being one. Peter the Apostle stands with Paul in his passion also to promote unity. He says in 1 Peter 3, 8, Finally, all of you, which includes how many? All of you. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Would you hold your finger for a moment in Ephesians chapter 4? You may need to go to the table of contents for this one. Go to the book of Nehemiah with me. I'll give you a minute to find it. Ezra, Nehemiah, and the pages of the Old Testament. Nehemiah chapter 8, and as we read this section of Scripture together, I want you to see the power of the people of God when they stand united. And as I prepared this message and and reviewed Ezra chapter 8, I thought to myself, you know, it would be really fun to have the church family stand. You've already stood, but in your mind's eye, we're we're standing for this one. Ezra 8 verse 1, and all the people gathered as one man. Do we need to go further? You see the unity? They gathered as one man in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe, and I love this, to bring the book. (laughs) Is anyone like that? Bring the book, the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. And the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and all the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And they stood with a a group of names. I'm not going to try to pronounce them. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And he opened it, and all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Observe with me that no one is complaining about the length of this worship service. This is an American phenomenon, especially from the end of August to the middle of February because of the little God called the NFL. Where I remember the first time I I took a short-term trip to teach at the Bible College in Minsk, Belarus, and I was invited to preach a little village church, and I was told in so many words, brace yourself and make sure you have a little food in your stomach because the service is going to be long. 
So I thought, you know, I had the sermon prepared and, you know, let's say a 30-minute sermon with translation. I mean, do the math on that. It's going to be 60 minutes because everything I say will be translated by a a Russian person, translator. And so we, we sang several songs together. We prayed together. There were scripture readings. And then the pastor came and, and preached. And I actually thought to myself, wait a minute, I thought I was going to preach. And when he finished his sermon, we sang a song together. And it had been probably about an hour and 15 minutes by that point. And then the pastor said, I want to invite Brother, Brother Slava to come and he's going to preach the word of God. And I thought, oh my word, they weren't kidding. And so Slava, he got up and preached. And after Slava finished preaching, they sang some more songs. And then Slava said, I want to have Brother Dave from the United States come and he's going to... And I'm getting hungry. Do you know that not one person complains in the Russian culture? They love to worship. Why? Because they stand united. In Nehemiah chapter 8, no one is complaining about the latest committee meeting. They are fixated on one thing, submitting to God and bowing before his sovereign authority. They love to worship God. And so when the people of God unite together and are attentive to the word and respond in in reverence and worship, it spreads like wildfire. Why? Unity is contagious. So I want to stop and ask an important question. Can you say that you are walking in a manner that is consistent with the calling you have been received, that you have received from God? Can you honestly say that your life is in sync with the calling that God has placed on your life? And finally, ask yourself, how am I contributing to the unity at Christ Fellowship? Because I'll make this guarantee. If you're not contributing to the unity, you are distracting from the unity. And so my prayer is that all of us would be contributing to the unity of our church family. So we have seen our responsibility to maintain this unity. Look finally with me and very briefly at the realities that undergird our unity. In verses 4 to 6, we find seven one statements that are were more than likely originally set forth as an ancient creed or a confessional hymn. And these statements highlight the the oneness that we share in the gospel. Let me read them off quickly for you. Paul says that our unity is on the basis of one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And finally, he concludes by saying it is on the basis of God and the Father of all. And I step back and I raise the drone high in the air to look down in this text and ask, ultimately, what is the basis of our unity? And running through this creed is an emphasis on the Trinity, which leads us back to the verses that cause Francis Schaeffer so much trouble. They cause him to cringe, where Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so we see here that it is the Trinity. It is the the triune God is the basis for our unity. 
John Stott once said, the unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. It is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the church than it, than it is possible to split the Godhead, he said. And so God calls us to lock arms. God calls you and I to be united. This is the final apologetic. This is the ultimate proof to the world that we are Christ's followers. I love the discipline of apologetics as much as anyone else. It is a deep passion of my heart. I love to learn the arguments. I love to learn the the philosophical arguments and the theological arguments and the biblical arguments. They all have a place in the Christian life and I believe are very necessary, but they are subordinate to the final apologetic, which is that we are to be people who love one another and stand in unity. And ultimately, our unity is founded in the doctrine of the Trinity. The final year that I played tennis on the team at Multnomah University, we gathered together for one final dinner where we were going to vote on the most valuable player. Now, I really apologize for this picture. You can barely see it. I'm the one that's marked, has the worst features. I'm in the bottom right. But six players on our tennis team with my favorite professor and coach, Hugh Salisbury. The next year, we got together and had a new coach. And at the awards banquet at Coach Youngward's house, because Hugh Salisbury went to be with the Lord, we gathered together for a meal. And Coach Youngward said, gentlemen, it's come time that we pick the most valuable player. And so he, he took the hat off of his head, and he said, I, I have some pieces of paper here, and I'm going to give one piece of paper to each player, and I'm going to also have a vote, and I want you to vote for someone on the team. And it can't be yourself. Vote for one other person and drop it in the hat. And so the different members of the team would write down the most valuable player, the MVP, and then Coach Youngward was the last one to receive the hat. And he looked in the hat and kind of shook it up, and he began to make an account of, of who the players were that received a vote. And I'll never forget it as he pulled out the fourth one, he pulled out the fifth one, he pulled out the sixth one, he looked at the seventh one, and he got this massive grin on his face. And he put it down. And he said, gentlemen, I don't know how to tell you this, but the team is the MVP. And everyone on the team thought, come on, they all thought that Steele should get it. Come on. What is this? And he said, no, it's Dave Steele doesn't get it. And Kurt, you don't get it. And I don't get it. He goes, I don't know how to tell you this, but every player on the team voted for another person. We all got one vote. How is that possible? It's possible because our tennis team was united. We were a band of brothers. We loved each other. And not one of those young men had self-interest on that evening. I want him to be the MVP. No, I want him to be the MVP. And I have gone back to my coach a few times and we have reminisced about that story, how the team that year won 
the most valuable player. You see, unity is the glue that held us together, including the coach who also received one vote. I want to have you turn to one final scripture and we will be done. Psalm chapter 133. And it may be the strongest and most persuasive section of scripture that points to the unity of God's people. And it goes something like this. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. We have a responsibility to maintain unity by walking in a worthy manner, according to the calling with which we have been called. And there's no question that we have a a diversity of gifts, a diversity of ethnic backgrounds, a, a diversity of personal backgrounds and various interests. But here's one thing that we know. We stand united around the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the Trinity who unites us. Scripture says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And I conclude by saying that the only way we can be united together is by personally being united to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is we discussed in Veritas class this morning in the members class. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that a holy God, a holy God developed this plan where he would send his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he would be born of the Virgin Mary, that he would, he would live a life that, that Adam couldn't live, that Eve couldn't live, and that none of us could ever live. And he perfectly fulfilled the law of God for the glory of God and on our behalf. And then he was nailed to a wooden cross, and he suffered and bled on that bloody cross, a bloody cross that is being minimized by even evangelical theologians. Shame on them. And so we cling to this bloody cross. We, as we sung earlier, we placed our trust in Jesus who hung on this bloody cross and he breathed his last and they put him in a hole in the ground and he was there for three days. On the third day, God raised him from the dead and now he is seated at the right hand of the Father Father, where he intercedes on behalf of all of his elect. The word of God calls us to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we'll be saved. The word of God calls us to, to turn from our sin and to turn to Jesus so that we will receive everlasting life. We don't become Christians by doing good things. We don't become Christians by coming to church. I remember Keith Green, before he went to be with the Lord, said that just because I go to McDonald's doesn't mean I become a hamburger. Oh, is he right? Just because you come to church does not mean you're a Christian. You are a Christian on the basis of personal trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and casting your sin to Calvary's cross. Then you will have peace with the living God. And so may we stand in unity around the purpose of Christ's fellowship to build disciples, not only here, but also at Camp Gilead and all around the world. 
May unity at Christ Fellowship begin with me and may it begin with you, with boys and girls and and men and women. And may the world recognize that we are followers of Jesus who stand locked arms together, who stand in unity, which will be expressed ultimately in the kingly reign of the Lord Jesus Christ one day in the future. Spence, are you excited for that day? Oh. Oh, what a day it will be. So let us stand together in unity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this strong plea that we receive from the pen of the Apostle Paul, your servant, who writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for helping us to understand the importance of of standing together in unity. God, I pray that you would help us to grow and understanding and embracing this imperative, even as we move forward in this great book. God, as we stand together in unity, as we display the qualities of of humility and, and gentleness and love, God, as we are peace-loving people, may the world recognize that we are Christ followers. May they recognize us because we love one another and we also love them. So use us mightily in these days and these troubling times in which we live. May you be glorified here in Whatcom County and here at Christ Fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.